It's time change Sunday. How many got that extra hour sleep? You took advantage of it? How many burned that extra hour doing something else? You stayed up extra late? I was talking to one of our worship team members today. I won't tell you who, but they got the times mixed up, and so they put their clock ahead. And not only did they put it ahead, they went to bed early so they wouldn't lose the hour's sleep. And so they got two hours of extra sleep. And that's why the worship was so amazing today. <laughs> it wasn't Pastor Holly, I'll just tell you that much. Uh, for me personally, I was glad. I was, uh, let me tell you a little secret. You know, I, I'm, you know how I'm really bad with dates. I do announcements all the time. I throw out dates and the staff are like, no, that's the wrong date. Well, I'm, I was supposed to do a presentation a week uh, from Monday. And I was working a, a district thing I was doing, and I had it on my calendar. I'm, I'm doing a presentation, a workshop uh, next week. And on Thursday night at 5 o'clock, I found out that I had actually mixed up my dates. And it's not next Monday, it's tomorrow. <laughs> and so I lost a week of prep time to work on it. But thank God I had an extra hour to work on my workshop this week. God knows what you need, doesn't he? If you ever find yourself stuck, like you're waffling between like two options, you ever find yourself in that place, like that indecisive place where you can't really quite decide, like making choices is a hard thing. Now, some of us find it harder than others. Where's all the indecisive people? You're just like, naturally, I'm indecisive. I just can't choose, right? And like some things are important. Like you don't want to make the wrong decision. I know some of you high school students right now, you're thinking of what career you want to pursue and what college or university you want to apply to. And, and so that's a big decision. But for some of us, we get stuck on the little things. How many have gone through a couple outfits this morning and you just can't choose, right? You just can't choose. And you, you start out with one thing and you got a few things on the bed to put away when you get home, right? And I, I, I thought it would be fun today to play a little game. Uh, this game is called Would You Rather. So if you can, would you please stand where you are? And if you can't stand, that's okay. You could play this game. I'm gonna give you two options. Okay, what you're gonna do is if you want option one, you're gonna turn and face this way in your chair. So you're gonna face, face that way. And if you want option two, you're gonna face this way, okay? Okay, so here we go. Would you rather, and so if you're gonna, you're gonna point this way, would you rather read the book, face this way, or watch the movie, face that way, okay? Would you rather read the book or, read, or watch the movie? All right. See, this is fun. You're getting to know your neighbor. Okay, here we go. Next one. Would you rather have a personal chauffeur or a personal chef? Pers <laughs> All the moms were like, chef. Chauffeur, chef, okay. You can only do one thing for the rest of your life. Would you only rather be able to whisper or be able to shout? You can only whisper or you can only shout. <laughs> And some couples are just found themselves facing each other. All right, you ready? Your entire wardrobe needs to be made out of flannel plaid, flannel plaid, or denim. Your entire wardrobe is flannel plaid or denim. Socks and underwear, think about it. Plaid, flannel, or denim? Okay. Would you rather... Would you rather have a cold shower every day or a hot shower once a week? Cold shower every day or a hot shower once a week? 
Now, I promise I haven't been judging you, but I will judge you on this one. Would you rather be a cat or would you rather be a dog, okay? Here we go, cat, dog. All right, so we can see where people are. All right, you can have a seat this morning. Thanks so much for playing my game. We all face a variety of choices every day, don't we? Sometimes it's hard to choose. Sometimes it's like dog, cat. It's, that's, that's a no-brainer right there. Like a dog all the way. Cats, no. But some choices, some choices are hard to choose. Like to this afternoon. Now you're going to come to Chili Cook-Off today. I know that. But on a regular Sunday, like what restaurant are we going to go to to eat? Like, that's a hard choice. Like, we're going to spend a half an hour just trying to choose. And then you're going to get there and you're going to look at the menu. And you're going to look at, you know, the Cobb salad. Or you're going to look at the burger and fries. And you're going to have this tension of which one am I going to choose. And it's going to be a battle. And some of you go to the restaurant. And I don't understand this. But you can't choose. And so you ask the waiter or the waitress. You ask the host, the host someone that you don't know. You've never met before. You have no idea how good their tastes are and, uh, and they don't know you and you ask them what would you recommend right it's absurd when you think about it that you're asking a total stranger what you should do but sometimes it would be easier if someone would just choose for us and tell us what to do right like all you men thank God we have someone to do that in our lives usually right <laughs> it's your mom or your wife or your sister or your child somebody telling you what to do I'm just kidding I'm just kidding some, <laughs> I wear the pants in this family, Pastor Ralph. Holly just tells me which ones to wear. Sometimes you'd rather decide not to decide, right? And that in itself is a decision. We're just deciding not to decide. But every day we're faced with choices. One of those choices is to worship, serve, and honor God. In fact, that's not an everyday choice. That's a moment-by-moment -moment choice, isn't it? That we get to choose to follow God. And so in this series that we've been in, it's a series we've called Altars. And we've been looking through the scriptures at various altar moments throughout the Old Testament where God marked a moment in people's lives. It was his presence, his power. It was his provision. And we saw how God's people, they celebrated that moment. And they marked God's faithfulness, his blessing in their lives. And so we've been looking at these different stories. In week one, we saw how Abraham built an altar of covenant where God said, as I have been with you, I will be with you. In week two, we saw the altar of celebration and we talked about how your celebration can, uh, is your motivation to continue pursuing even though the obstacles are daunting. And it's your inspiration for the people coming behind you, your family, your children, that someone else has gone this way before. Last week, we talked about the altar of new beginning that, all, that Noah built. We saw that God is the God of fresh starts and new beginnings. And many of you uh, told me that was really significant for you. But this morning, I want to turn uh, to 1 Kings 18. If you'll turn with me in there, your Bibles, uh, if you have them with you, we'll have it on the screen as well. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the Old Testament prophet Elijah and how he built the altar of worship. 1 Kings 18, as we dive into this passage, and as you read the surrounding chapters, you realize that this point of history, Israel is pretty stuck. Uh, they've been faced with a choice that has left them paralyzed, and so far, their decision has been not to decide. 
They haven't made a choice or chosen. And as we read this story, we see that Israel has been on a downward spiral for many years at this point. Reading through chapters 14 to 16, there's been a succession of kings. And when you read those chapters, it says that the kings and the rulers of Israel were continuously provoking the Lord to anger. Imagine that. That they were causing God's people to sin by leading them away from God towards ungodly practices in idol worship. And so it says, as you read through, that each king followed the poor example of the king before them in doing evil and in not following God. And so it's the steady uh, stream of kings until we get to Omri. And it says about Omri that he did more evil than the kings before him. And then his son Ahab comes on this scene, and it says of Ahab that he was worse than his dad. First Kings 16.33 says, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. How many you know your nation's on a downward spiral when your key leader is doing more to provoke the Lord than anyone before him? We see of Ahab that he's sort of straddling the line. Culturally speaking, he's a, a, a Jehovah, a Yahweh follower. He is, he is an Israelite. He's following God culturally. We see that in his sons. He, he gives his sons God-honoring names. Ahaziah, his son, means owned by Jehovah. His other son, Jehoram, means Jehovah is exalted. And so he's naming his uh, sons these great God-fearing names, but, but practically he's living with his other foot on the other side of the line. It says of Ahab that he chose to marry the wicked witch of the West. If you ever watched the, uh, the Wizard of Oz, you'll know the wicked. And, and we know this woman's name is infamous for being evil and, and just despicable. It's, his wife was Jezebel. Jezebel. I've never heard of a girl come up for a baby dedication at church with the name Jezebel. You know, we might have to second guess that that was the name that we chose. Right? And Jezebel was fully committed to making the cult of her homeland, the national uh, religion, the official state religion of Israel. She brought her idol worship with her, and as she did, she made it her mission to tear down the altars of God in Israel and build shrines and altars to Baal and to Baal's wife, Asherah, the god and goddess of her country. We see that King Ahab, as a primary ruler and influencer, uh, as the key leader of Israel, doesn't do anything to stop her. In fact, he actually builds a temple and sets up an altar to Baal. And it says that he bows his knee and, and worships Baal along with Jezebel. Well, the Lord calls Elijah, if you're familiar with the story. Elijah really, uh, the name means the Lord is God. And he gives him this mission. He gives them this mission to, to go to Ahab and to prophetically declare that God is going to do something significant in the land. He says, I'm going to declare that there is going to be a drought. There's going to be a drought in the nation of Israel. No dew, no rain until the Lord sends me back again. To, uh, and, and so uh, Ahab goes and he brings this message to Ahab. And three years go by. Three years go by of drought, no dew. 
I know here in the Okanagan we talk about these elevated drought seasons, but, but no rain, no dew for three years. We read in the text that Ahab actually goes searching for Elijah. He's desperate for an answer and a solution. And he's all, he sends out messengers through all the land looking for Elijah, but he can't find him. Three years go by and God sends Elijah to Ahab again. By this time, his wife has almost decimated the, 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 the worship of God. She's killed uh, the majority of, of God's priests and, and prophets. And, and so God says, Elijah, I want you to go back to Ahab. Now, just think about this mission for a moment. We just prayed for the persecuted church around the world where it's uh, the threat of martyrdom or it's illegal to own a Bible. It's illegal to declare allegiance to Jesus or to share that with others. And, and so Elijah's going back to this place. He's coming out of hiding. He's going right into the, the, the mouth of the lion, as it were. Uh, and he's going to Ahab. And as he does, he comes to Ahab and he tells him that the Lord's about to send rain. God has spoken and told me he's about to send rain and this is what we need to do. We need to gather all the people of Israel at Mount Carmel and I want you to summon the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 uh, prophets of Asherah and meet me there. That brings us to our text today. 1 Kings 18 verse 20. It says, So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel and Elijah stood in front of them and he said, How much longer will you waver? hobbling between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. They weren't like you. They were like this silent. You guys are rambunctious and boisterous and you're saying amen and calling me on today. But Elijah's throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying it's time to stop waffling, guys. He's saying to them, it's time to make a decision. If God is God, then serve him. And if he isn't, let's stop wasting our time pretending and, and just be done with it. Fully committing to these other gods. Now some context will help us understand the irony of, about what, of what's about to take place. Uh, Baal, if you're not familiar, is a Canaanite god. And, and Baal was the god of rain. And as the god of rain, he was the, uh, you know, they looked to him for the fertility of the land, the produce, and out of it, the uh, prosperity that came from the land. So it's ironic that we have this Baal idol, the god of rain, and then we have Jehovah, we have Yahweh, uh, who has shut the heavens for the last three years. It's an interesting irony, isn't it? And so this is the context that we have. Now it can be tempting at times for us as modern intellectuals to look at these stories and think how silly and quaint of these ancient people to be following and, and serving idols. It's tempting to think that, isn't it? Like, it's, like we're so far more advanced than them. But the truth is really this, that we worship the same things that they did, right? We still pursue power and sex and prosperity. Uh, we still produce, uh, uh, pursue all of these things. And we recognize uh, that these people actually attributed a spiritual dimension, a spiritual uh, uh, power to the idols that they pursued. And so as, as modern thinkers, we're, we don't think of the spiritual dimension very much. But really, this puts them ahead of us, doesn't it? Especially as North Americans, our eyes and our hearts are not super in tune to the spiritual realm and to the spiritual significance of things that are going on around us. But the truth is that we're all worshipers. Maybe here, you're here today and you're thinking, well, I'm not a worshiper. I'm not very religious. 
Maybe you're here and you came with a friend and, and you thought, I'm not really a church person or a religious person, so I'm not a worshiper. But, but I want to encourage you today that we're all worshipers. Worship, I love etymology. I, like, I love when you go and look at the study of words and, and how do we get them, where do they come from? And, and the word worship really comes from the old English word worthship. And really it's a, a giving worth or ascribing value to a thing. And so the act of worship is really us just giving value and ascribing worth. When we're worshiping with our words, we're singing of the value and, the, and of the worth of God. When we give in our worship, we are investing in something of worth or of value. When we serve, we're giving our time and we are giving our, our blood, sweat, and tears into something of value. And so worship is really ascribing worth. And we all have things we assign ultimate worth to, don't we? We would all have things that we would say, this is what defines me. This is what I'm about as a person. This is what I believe will make me happy. This is what I think that without it, life isn't worth living. So even if you're not religious, there's still things in your lives that you give a sense of worth or purpose to. It's that gotta have it thing to be fulfilled. It's that thing that you think about all the time. Some of you are thinking about golf right now and you're like, golf is my thing. But if you're thinking about it all of the time, what is that? That's meditation, right? And then you spend all your money on greens fees and golf clubs. And what is that? That is sacrifice. <laughs> and so I'm meditating and I'm sacrificing to the thing in my life. Now, there's nothing wrong with golf, but when it takes that place, of worship in our life. You can insert whatever it is that you want to insert there. But scripture consistently warns us about making the wrong things the things we worship. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10, it says, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. I love how uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he writes, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can give you. Essentially, an idol is something that has taken the ultimate worth in your life. You can't imagine life without it. Rather than God, it becomes your primary source of security, your fulfillment, your identity. The thing is hard for us sometimes to recognize idols because sometimes idols are good things that have become God things in our life. Good things that have become God things. There's nothing wrong with golf. You know it can become an idol, right? There's nothing wrong with money, but when it becomes a primary form of our security, when it becomes a thing we're worried about all the time, worried we're not gonna have it, or worried about how to get it, right? When we uh, are willing to sacrifice our integrity to get it, when we are willing to sacrifice our generosity to, to keep it. You know, we have even seen people willing to sacrifice their family to get more of it, right? Alcohol, uh, workaholism and stuff like that. For others, family represents their fulfillment. Some people loathe being single so much. And I understand the desire to have a family and to be married or to have kids. I understand that. But for some people, that's become the focal point of their life. has become their source of identity. It's become the source of their obsession. Some of us put so much weight on having the perfect family that we're unhappy and bitter when things don't work out the way that we wish that we would. A family can become an idol. For some of us, it's accomplishment. Our accomplishment is tied to our sense of identity, 
right? Rather than finding our identity and being a child of God, we're fueled by our achievements or other people's affirmations or other people's approval, right? And that becomes this thing that we worship and it becomes the obsession of our, our minds, the thing we meditate, the thing that we invest and sacrifice in. You know, we may not worship idols like, like these ancients did, but we worship the same things that we did. Right? There's hundreds of idols every day vying for our hearts. And that's what really worship is. It comes down to a battle for your heart. What has your heart? And so Elijah, he gathers the people around them and he gives them this pep talk. He gives them this rallying cry. He, I kind of picture that scene from the movie Braveheart where he gathers them all up and he's like, today's the day, guys. Today we're gonna choose. If God is God, let's worship him. And if God's not God, let's forget all that. And he's expecting a big cheer and it says, it says there's crickets. It says the people are silent. It's unlike the Braveheart movie at all. Can you imagine just giving it all you got? They're silent. Maybe they felt guilty and convicted. Maybe they were unconvinced. Maybe they're like, well, let's see how this goes first before we decide. Anyone like that? You're just kind of like in the back, like, hmm, let's see. You know, I'm not going to decide until I know how this is going. Well, Elijah sets up the challenge. First King 18, 22 says, Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left, but Baal has 450 prophets. They'll bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. And then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people said, sounds good to us. So then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first. There's many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it, and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. And so verse 26 says, they prepared one of the bulls, and they placed it on the altar, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. And they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them, I just love Elijah. He's just like, he's, he's awesome. So you have to shout louder, you scoffed. Imagine, you're the only one there following Jesus and everybody else is like, you know, on a different page and he has the audacity to mock them. He's gonna have to shout louder. Surely he's a God. Maybe he's daydreaming or he's relieving himself or maybe he's away on a trip or maybe he's asleep and needs to be wakened. And so they shouted louder. He's just stirring the pot. He's like the older brother. He must have been the oldest sibling, right? Stirring the pot. And so they shouted louder, following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. And they raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, and no response. You know, I read this passage, and I can't help but notice the writer includes two phrases that stood out to me about worshiping false gods. It says they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. And I wrote here that false gods require strenuous effort to please them. See, the false god of religion says, are you working hard enough? Are you keeping up the rules well enough? Are you deserving of God to respond to you? Secular idols like money and success, you know, they demand that we constantly dance that we're feverishly trying to get into the right school and land the right job and acquire enough wealth to be considered a success. 
The idol of beauty demands that we crossfit and Pilates and dance and diet and, you know, we have to, uh, you know, plastic surgery ourselves all to find that place that we're comfortable and feel good about ourselves. The idol of popularity it has us dancing always on our toes around our friends and families, hoping uh, that, you know, that they'll like us, that they'll approve of us. It's like a big So You Think You Can Dance audition. What are they going to think of me now, right? When we're following this idol of popularity. But it says in this verse that they literally danced until they were hurt and limping. It says that they were hobbled. The word hobble, it just means to walk in an awkward way, typically because of pain from injury, is to be restricted in activity or development of a thing. And so they were hobbled. How many times have we seen people whose lives have been hobbled in the attempt of pursuing the idol? And in their, in their pursuit of their idol, it's left them injured in pain and brokenness. See, people all the time whose freedom is restricted, like they have a shackle on their soul. That's what false idols do. False idols require strenuous effort to please them. And false gods always push you toward destruction. So they shouted louder and they followed their normal custom. They cut themselves. It's interesting the Bible says their normal custom, it's almost like their normal custom was not to be heard. Their normal custom was to be begging for an answer. Idols always keep you pushing for more. Do more, earn more, work harder, be more earnest, and then you'll get the response that you crave. Some of us have found ourselves in that place. Just trying to find a response that we're looking for. Idols always push you to a place of destruction. It says in their earnestness and desperation, they were literally slashing themselves. People in our culture are literally slashing their bodies. You think of anorexia. We think of the great lengths that people go through plastic surgery. Not that it, you know, it's necessarily bad, but they're trying to find this desperate uh, peace with their bodies, with their figure. We see people slashing their families through workaholism, through the pursuit of money, through uh, you know, just all kinds of things. We see them slashing their souls where they compromise their integrity in order to succeed or to advance themselves. And what happens when we have slashed ourselves and we find ourselves uh, wounded and, and bleeding? We turn to addiction. We try to find something to numb the pain. We find this happening in our culture all around us. Yeah, we don't serve idols, but we do serve idols in our culture, don't we? And idols always end up giving the same result. It says, still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Going down to verse 30. Elijah decides that he's seen enough and that his point has been made. And he says, guys, I've given you all day. And it says that he goes, he takes 12 stones from the broken down altar that had been there in that place. And he takes 12 stones and he rebuilds the altar. We see 12 stones symbolic of the 12 nations of, uh, of tribes of Israel. And he builds this altar. What had been torn down, he rebuilds. And then he puts the wood on top of the altar. And then he builds a trench around the altar. And then he says to the people, he says, I want you to go. And I want you to get three buckets and fill them full of water and begin to pour it out onto the sacrifice. Pour it out over the altar. And when you get those three, go and get three more and three more and three more until 12 jugs of water have been poured over this altar till it was running down the rocks, till it was filling the trench below it. 
And I want us to just think of this for a moment. Where are they in this place and time? They're in the middle of a drought. And so what is Elijah doing? He's making this sacrifice impossible. It's hard to, wet, uh, to ignite a wet altar. But at the same time, he's also pouring out what's most valuable and sacred to them. Is he's pouring out and pouring out onto the altar what they're all desperate to have. At the end of this challenge, they, they won't be able to say that he didn't give them an advantage, that's for sure. Verse 36 says, at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked to the altar and he prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command, O Lord, and answer me. And answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. It was a consuming fire. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. As God responds to people who had been silent, respond in the only way they know how. They respond with worship. They bow to the ground and they cry out, yes, he is God. Here's what I want us to know this morning, that while idols require strenuous effort, God receives you by grace through faith. See, when everyone else danced until they limped in pain to get Baal's attention, Elijah simply prayed a prayer of faith. God, would you hear me now? See, acceptance on other religions is based on our obedience and in our merit. If I obey, then I'll be accepted. But the gospel turns everything around and says, you're accepted. And your obedience is in a response to God's grace and mercy. See, while idols leave you broken and bleeding, God broke himself and bled for you. That's the power of the gospel. The people in their desperation for response cut themselves and bleed, looking to get their idol's attention. Jesus was broken and bled for your salvation. It's a beautiful thing. While idols are ultimately powerless, God responds with a miracle. Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, that would be great if God would just prove himself with a miracle. Like if my kids could all be in a good mood this afternoon, that would be a miracle. I would love that. You know, if God could make the Vancouver Canucks win the Stanley Cup, then I'll believe. <laughs> Some people came to Jesus in Matthew 12 and said, teacher, would you show us a miracle? Prove who you are. And Jesus said to this, said, the only sign I will give is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus is saying that the greatest miracle that God will ever do, the, the miracle that will, it's not just a sign but a proof, something that no other religion can lay claim to, was to resurrect a dead man to life. And just like Elijah's sacrifice was unreasonably beyond usable, it was saturated with water, 12 large jugs, and it was, it was beyond usable. The, the trough around it had been filled. And just as God consumed it, Jesus was unreasonably beyond a resurrection. 
We see flesh mutilated, heart pierced through with a spear. We see body laid in a grave for three days behind a stone. Roman guard posted to thwart any thieves or naysayers. And we see that just as God consumed the uh, altar of Elijah, we see that God comes down and he does the impossible. And he brings Jesus to life. God raised Jesus to life, not only uh, healing what was broken, not only freeing what was bound up, not only defeating what was impossibly dead. No, this miracle accomplished something so much greater than we could ever hoped or asked for. See, Jesus wasn't just a sign. He wasn't just a proof. Jesus was a provision for you and for me. It was a miraculous provision. Romans 8, verse 3 says, God sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sin. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living in you. How many are thankful for that gift of God today? That's a God's gift freely given to you by grace, amen? You don't have to dance to get a response to God because your Savior already died. You don't need to bleed to cover your sin because Christ already bled for you. You don't need to earn it, deserve it. All you need to do is freely receive it. Say, God, I received this gift from you today. I'm gonna invite you all across this room. Can we do what the Israelites did in that moment? They recognized what God had done and they said that they began to worship him. Would you stand around this room if you can? We're just gonna worship God another moment and just say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. We're not doing this because we have to earn your attention. We don't wave our hands to say, God, look at me. Would you see me? Would you hear me? I wave my hands to say, God, I'm so thankful. I give you this sacrifice of praise. You don't need to sing loudly because God can't hear you. You can sing loudly because you have the joy of the Lord. And so thank you, God, for what I couldn't do and what idols couldn't do and what I've looked for in other places you've done for me. Let's worship God together this morning. You know, church, as Elijah was at the altar, he said, God, would you answer so that all the people will know that you're calling them back to you. That's the story. From the very beginning of the Bible all the way through to the very end, God calling people back to himself. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Jerry, I know. I know right off the bat that I've been following idols in my life. I've been looking for fulfillment, satisfaction, and things that have left me empty. I've been, I've been mutilating myself trying to appease and find hope. Today I want you to know that Jesus gives you this free gift of salvation, freedom. All you need to do is say, God, I received that gift today. Is there anyone this morning you'd say, Pastor Jer, I need that gift. I want to receive that gift today. I want to follow Jesus. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Who would join those two at the back? Anyone else this morning say, that's me making that decision today to follow Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Amazing decision. Hallelujah. Maybe you're here today and you think like more like your life was like that altar that Elijah poured out. Like the, the sacrifice is there, the altar is built, but it's saturated with water. There's nothing God can do with it. But I want you to know this morning that God is a consuming fire. I want you to know this morning that it doesn't matter about the sacrifice. It's all about the power of God. God wants to come. He wants to meet with you. Anyone you say, I just need to meet with God afresh today. But yeah, praise God. Amen. 
Amen. Jesus, I pray for my friends, those who have decided to follow you for the first time, for the first time in a long time. Maybe they're just re-deciding again. Lord, as we look at our lives and we see that things have crept into that place of the worship that we've reserved for you, we've been looking to other things. Maybe some of us have been walking in brokenness and hurt. Lord, we don't slash our bodies physically, but we know that we're doing damage to our soul, trying to find peace and hope and fulfillment, and yet we know, God, today you want to bring healing, restoration, wholeness, and freedom. So we ask that you do that in this place. God, for those of us that are struggling with our lives, God, we feel insecure, we feel inadequate. God, we just know that you don't look at the condition of the sacrifice. Lord, that you are the consuming fire who do us miracles. And so we just pray, God, would you come and do a miracle in our lives today as we worship you. God, I pray that worship would be the soundtrack of our life. That worship would, as we leave this place, our praise. That we don't praise you to get your attention. We praise you because of what you've already promised. We praise you because of your presence that has already uh, manifested itself in our life. God, that we've seen you at work. So we give you the glory and the honor and the praise today in Jesus' name, amen.